The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, June 30th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. This morning we are going to continue in our Summer Psalms series and we have quite the Herculean task in front of us on Family Sunday as we consider Psalm 105 and Psalm 106 together. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and make your way there. And I say it's Herculean because if you've never looked at Psalm 105 and 106 together, you won't know that together they're comprised of 93 verses. Welcome to Family Sunday, right? I made a note that I need to schedule a meeting this week with whoever it is that puts these things together. They need to pay attention to their calendar. So it's my fault, sorry. But why would we tackle such a task on Family Sunday or on any Sunday? I mean, 93 verses. Well, first, Psalm 105 and Psalm 106 are intended by the psalmist to be read, to be sung, to be remembered together. It's when you read them together, when you hear them together, that the full weight and the full impact of what the psalmist is trying to get across about God's majesty and our need for his mercy, it's when you see them together that that begins to fall more heavily upon you. You can certainly do them separately, but you miss the thrust and you miss the weight of what was intended by the psalmist because God's people in, in Israel for centuries, they would have read or sung these two together back to back. So we thought, let's do those two back to back since that's the way they were intended to be done. All 93 verses of them. But secondly, we would do them this way because they carry together a very timely message for God's people. And, and rather than allowing you to capture that message as we go through it, which is the way I normally do it, I'm just going to tell you what the message is up front. And that's simply this. Our forgetfulness of God leads to all manner of sinful foolishness in our life, period. Forgetfulness leads to foolishness. And let's be honest, we're a very forgetful people. We're easily distracted, we're overwhelmed, we're busy, and our distraction and our busyness can cause us to be forgetful. I was reading an article this week the writer started the article off this way. I'll just give you the first two sentences. He said, we live in a very funny age. Some people still have telephone landlines, but they mostly use them to call their cell phone because they've forgotten where they left it. <laughs> and they need their cell phone because it has an app on it that helps them find their car keys <laughs> because they've forgotten where they put their car keys. We can become so busy and so distracted that we become extremely forgetful. We begin to forget little things about that. But our forgetfulness doesn't just extend to the things in our life. Let's be really honest. Our busyness and our distraction and our forgetfulness leads us more often than we want to admit to forgetting even the people in our own world. I won't name anyone by name, but over 11 years of doing life together as a church, more than one of you, more than once, has gotten so distracted by the conversation that you've had after a service, by the time you've been able to, to spend with other people, that you've made plans for the afternoon, you've gotten in your car, you've driven off, and you've left us with your kids. <laughs> more families, more than once, have forgotten their own children here. 
But you know how easy it is to get so distracted and so busy and so focused on the demands of the moment and the needs that you interpret of the moment that you forget not just your phone and your keys, you forget people, appointments you've made, promises you've made, things you've committed to. And the more we forget along this way, it's like a spectrum, the danger begins to increase. We don't just forget things, we often forget people, but we can become so distracted and busy and captivated by the urgent that we find ourselves ultimately forgetting God himself. It was Paul Tripp who, who wrote, every single morning, God's generosity greets us in at least a dozen ways, but we barely recognize it as we frenetically prepare for our day. When we lay our exhausted heads down at the end of the day, we often fail to look back on the many gifts that God dripped from his hands into our little lives. You see, perpetual forgetfulness can have dire consequences. The foolishness that comes from our forgetfulness of God has tremendous consequences on our lives, and the psalmist will help us to see that. Psalm 105 and 106, they are here to help rescue us from the foolishness of our forgetfulness. So this morning, as we attempt to make our way through these two psalms together, we are going to begin by standing and reading together the first few verses of each psalm. So if you've got your Bibles opened up to 105, go ahead and stand. We stand as, a, as an act of honor towards God's word. This is how God's people would have heard his word through the centuries. Just like when a judge walks into the room as an act of honor, you stand. Just like gentlemen who used to exist would still stand before all the ladies with them would sit down at the table as an act of honor. God's people stand where they read his word as an act of honor towards his word. So Psalm 105, we're going to read the first few verses of it and then 106. Begins this way, O give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people, sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his name, let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he's uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones, remember. Now flip over to Psalm 106. We're not going to read all 93 verses. Psalm 106, let's start at the beginning. Let's just hear how it begins. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all of his praise? Blessed are those who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O oh Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Let's pray as we begin this morning. Lord, we ask that you would do in our time this morning the very miracle that only you can do, that you would open up our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we may hear with joy all that you have to say to us this morning about your majesty and your mercy and your grace and your son. And we ask that you would do that in his name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. These psalms 
as you heard just in the beginning, they start off with, with quite a bang. There's, there's a series of commands that starts off both of these psalms. And these commands, in essence, are a call to God's people to live a particular life of worship. And if we're really honest and we go back and reflect on how the psalmist began and what he calls us to, I think we could admit that we want to be these kind of people. We want to be people who instinctively call on God. We want to be people who make known his deeds and tell of his works without fear. We want to be a people who use the voices that he has given us to sing to him without shame. We want to be a people who seek him and his strength and his presence continually, doing all of those things, as the psalmist says, with grateful hearts, giving thanks. Out of gratitude, we want to be these people. I want to be marked by these things. It's my prayer that our families and our homes and the hearts of the people in this church are marked by these things. But if we're really honest, these things aren't automatic. I mean, if we're really honest at the outset of this psalm, many of us struggle, not just on a weekly basis, but on a daily basis, to live the life of worship the way the psalmist in Psalm 105 and 106 calls us to. We're so easily distracted by the demands of the urgent so easily distracted by our perceived needs for the day, so prone to shiny object syndrome of the heart, we find 10,000 other things in front of us that we seek to praise. 10,000 other things in our world that promise us something worthy of all of our attention and affection. And really, can you just make yourself do all these things? I mean, can I just wake up and make myself Seek the Lord this way with gratitude? And if I could, is that really what God wants? Does he really want for me to just get up and, and grip myself into this? Psalm 105 and 106 are here to help us. The bulk of the 93 verses are here to not just help us understand why we're called to live lives of worship like this, why these commands are meant to mark the way that we live, but more importantly, how we actually get to the place where we become these kind of people. Psalm 105 and 106 are here to rescue us from our distraction. And it begins in verse 5 of Psalm 105. The psalmist says this, Remember. Remember. In particular, remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles, and the judgments that he has uttered. What's the path towards becoming the kind of people that seek the Lord continually? That glory and, and tell of his wondrous works without fear. That can stand in the gathering of his people and sing without shame. That daily seek his presence and his power continually. It, it happens as we become a people that can remember. Remember his wondrous works that he has done. And he goes on to say, the judgments he's uttered, O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen one. So let me help you at the outset of these psalms to help keep Psalm 105 and 106 from simply becoming a history lesson because that's, in a sense, what they are. Psalm 105 and 106 are called historical psalms because they're going to go through different episodes and periods in the history of God's people. But to keep them from just being history, if you're here this morning and you would consider yourself a follower of Jesus, you need to hear Psalm 105 and 106 as part of your story. This is your family history. 
you by the grace of God have become an offspring of Jacob, a chosen one of God. So just as someone who comes to this country and becomes a, a citizen of the United States with all the rights and privileges and inheritance that come with citizenship, when they become a citizen, July 4th and the history of the freedom of this nation becomes part of their story now. You need to hear Psalm 105 and 106 by the grace of God as part of your story. This is you. These are your people. And for the bulk of these verses, the psalmist is going to do all that he can do to help jog our memory that we might be a people who can remember the wondrous works that God has done, that our lives might be marked by the praise that he deserves. So he's going to give us a number of things that we're to remember and we'll move through them as sufficiently and rapidly as we can. The first thing the psalmist says we must remember, he comes right out of the gate with it in verses seven through 11. He says we have to remember God's promise and God's protection, both of which we didn't deserve. God's promise and protection that we didn't deserve. Verses seven through 11, he recounts the story of God coming to a man named Abram. Abram was a man that God chose, that God came to, that God said, I am going to make a promise to you and your offspring. He had no children at the time. I am committing myself, God said, to you now and forever. I am going to be yours. You are going to be mine. I am going to give you offspring that will outnumber the stars in the sky and I will be yours. God committed himself by his own name to Abram and his offspring to be theirs for all of eternity. He made a promise to prosper and bless and protect Abraham and his offspring. It was a promise that Abram did nothing to earn or deserve. There was nothing about Abraham that commended him to God any more than any other person. The promise was an act of sheer grace. And in spite of Abraham's foolishness and sinfulness, God would keep his promise and along with his promise would bring the protection necessary for his people. Look at verse 12. When they were few in number of little account and sojourners in the land. That's the description of God's people in the beginning. Few in number of little account. That's great. Wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, God allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account saying, touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. So as Israel would sing these songs throughout the centuries, little clips are given throughout the history, but it would bring to their mind the stories those clips come from. And as they would sing this song and remember God's promise to them and then his protection to them, it would be staggering to their heart because the stories they're remembering are back in Genesis chapter 20. When Abram and his wife and his family were traveling from the land where God called him to the place where God was leading him and they would go through all these different territories and nations, twice, Abram, the man that God had come to and chosen and committed himself to, twice when he came in the presence of another king in another land, told those kings that his wife was actually his sister so that he might be spared and given protection in the land. Twice, he said, no, that's not my wife. It's my sister. And not just that, you can have her. Turned her over to those kings. In Genesis chapter 20 in particular, you can go and you can read of the story when the Lord himself showed up to a man named King Abimelech. 
Abraham had told Abimelech that his wife Sarah was actually his sister, given her to Abimelech to take into his harem. God showed up and said, don't touch her. Don't lay a hand on her. That's what the psalmist is referring to. God's people were of little account, foolish and fragile. Yet his promise to them and his protection of them remained. And the psalmist is saying from the outset, you've got to remember a God like this whose promise to you and protection of you doesn't wax and wane with the tides of your faith. You need to remember him. And not just that, he keeps going with the story. You need to remember God's providence for you that always provides. This is verses 16 through 27. And he takes them back to the story of Joseph. Genesis chapter 37 through 50. But in those verses, he compresses a lot of history. And they would have understood the story instinctively in their mind as they would sing the song. And the psalmist is reminding them, you've got to remember your God, how he rules and directs circumstance for his glory and your good. You've got to remember Joseph, sold into slavery by his brothers, taken into Egypt by a caravan of traders, sold to Potiphar, falsely accused by his wife of assault, put in prison, forgotten twice while in prison, having interpreted dreams for those in prison and Pharaoh himself, eventually remembered, brought out of prison by Pharaoh, put second in command next to Pharaoh, given control of all the storehouses and grain in all of Egypt. Psalmist says you've got to remember God in the story of Joseph. When God summoned a famine on the land, when Abraham's descendants, when Joseph's family, when Israel would suffer from a famine in the land, all supply of bread, the psalmist said, was broken. God had already sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold a slave. God had summoned the famine, but God had already prepared the way. God had sent Joseph ahead of the way and exalted him to that position where he would prepare for God's people to come to find relief where he would make the reveal to his brothers what you intended for evil, God meant for good. Which means the ordeal of Joseph having been sold into slavery, found himself falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, finding himself in prison, all of his ordeal consolidated into two verses in 18 and 19 was also part of God's plan. The psalmist is saying you don't just need to remember Joseph, you don't just remember what happened, but you need to remember God's providence that always provides for his people. A sovereign God who may bring you into a valley of hardship, but at the same time will always bring his means of sustaining for his people. My favorite Old Testament commentator is a guy named Dale Ralph Davis. Dale Ralph Davis said that God's providence is a providence that doesn't pamper his people, but it's a providence that always provides. And the psalmist says you need to remember a God like this and you need to hear it again and again. Because it's when we are in the dark valleys of our own life, especially the situations and circumstances that might last a while, it's hard for you and I to see exactly what God is doing. If you've ever been in a situation physically where you can't see two feet in front of your own face because of the darkness, you can't even see your hand in front of your face, you don't know where you are and you lose all perception of understanding of your place in wherever you are, it's dark and you can't see. Sometimes moments and situations and, and times and seasons in our life feel that way. Suffering and distress, pain, difficulty, 
we find ourselves unable to look around and understand where is God in all of this? What is he doing in all of this? I can't see his activity at work in this situation. And the psalmist is saying you've got to remember a providential God who always provides. You've got to remember the story. It's part of your story. And as you remember, you're reminded over and over again of his providential faithfulness, particularly the story of Joseph. I think it's very easy for us to read Joseph's story in Genesis 37 through 50, to sit down with a cup of coffee, start there at the beginning, make our way through the end, where Joseph looks at his brothers in the end of the story and says, you may have sold me, but God sent me here. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. And we see all of God's faithfulness in the story wrapped up in Joseph's revealed to his brothers. And we can get from the beginning to the end in about 30 minutes, all along forgetting that it took Joseph a whole lot longer to get to that end. Joseph's story from Genesis 37 to chapter 50 lasted a little over 20 years from being sold into slavery by his brothers to being in the place where he could reveal what God was doing to them. We don't know where along the line, what part of the story, where, where in the chronology that reality sank home to Joseph's heart. But I can guarantee you it wasn't in 30 minutes. The psalmist says, you and I need to remember a sovereign and providential God who always provides for his people. You and I want instant answers to all these things. But Alexa can't answer what God is doing in the midst of a trial. Hey, Google can't help you. You and I need the anchor of remembering the providential sovereignty of a God who always provides for his people. That's the thing that anchors the soul in times of darkness. The psalmist goes on in verse 24. The Lord, while in Egypt, made his people very fruitful and he made them stronger than all their foes. But again, another turn of providence. God turned their hearts, the hearts of the Egyptians, to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. So again, another valley in the life of God's people has come because God is bringing them to it, but he always provides for them in it. So verses 28 through 38, the psalmist reminds us to remember not just God's providential provision in these times, but to remember God's almighty power. Not just power for the sake of power, but power that is always for his people. These verses, 28 through 30, take you back to Exodus chapter 7 through 10, when God would deliver his people from slavery in Egypt by literally bringing the mighty Egypt down to his knees. In particular, in Psalm 105, he recounts the plagues that God brought upon Egypt. Each of these devastating plagues that God brought upon the nation of Egypt was a direct confrontation and a direct conquest of a specific Egyptian God. Now, we don't have the time this morning to go plague by plague and God by God to show you all that, but you can see in verse 28 when the psalmist reminds them that it was God who sent darkness and he made the land dark. The Egyptians believed that the highest God in their order was the sun god Ra, he was the one that controlled the sun. He's the one that controlled light. He's the one that controlled darkness, night and day. They understood well enough the need for the sun for all that they were doing with the tides, with the crops, with everything. Sun God Ra was the highest in their order. Oh, you think he's the one that does night and day? God literally just flips the switch. Let him turn it back on. On and on down the line, from the Nile turning to blood, 
to the frogs plaguing the land. And I love how the psalmist says that not even Pharaoh and those in the high courts were exempt from it. They pull their bedsheets back at night. There's frogs jumping around. Flies and gnats, which some researchers will say are actually lice. A land plagued by overwhelming lice. How miserable is that? Locusts eating the fields. All of these were a direct confrontation with different Egyptian gods and a direct conquest by the power of God. God was demonstrating over and over again his almighty power, not just power for the sake of power, not just naked displays of power, but power for his glory and the good of his people. The psalmist said, God did it that they might know that I am the Lord. So easily deceived, so easily distracted, so forgetful of heart that they might know that I am the Lord. That nothing, not even Pharaoh and the mighty Egyptian army can stop my purpose for my people. My power for you is beyond compare. And the psalmist says, this is worth remembering. You've got to remember this power. But he goes on. The story's not over. The psalmist continues, you've got to remember God's continual provision and care for you. Verse 37, he brought Israel out with silver and gold, and there was none among the tribes who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread of them had fallen. So as God delivers Israel out of slavery in Egypt, the Egyptians celebrate. They give them gifts. Get out of here. Whatever God you serve, whatever God you worship is doing all these things, take him with you. They give them silver and gold to begin their journey toward the land that God has promised. And as they get out into the wilderness to make their way there, the psalmist picks up the story. God's not done caring for them. He spread a cloud for a covering, fire to give light by night. They asked and he brought quail, gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river. The psalmist is intent on focusing that the mind and the heart of God's people on God's presence and his provision for them through their story. He protected them. He guided them and directed them, provided for them. They got water out of a rock, bread that came from heaven, quail that they could eat all along reminding them that if he has the power to deliver them from slavery in Egypt, providing for them in the wilderness is a piece of cake. This was the principle behind the psalmist's urge to remember. The power of the almighty God delivering them out of slavery to Egypt, rescuing them from their bondage. If he can do that, caring for them along the way to the land is a piece of cake. And the psalmist puts this in the story for us to remember because let's be honest, it's so easy for you and I to forget that though God can save us from the bondage of our sin, though he can so graciously bring us, as Paul says, into the kingdom of his son, if he can do that, you can most certainly depend on him to keep you in the wilderness along the way. There's nothing that you need that he can't and won't provide. The one who has delivered you can provide for you every step of the way. So all throughout their story, the psalmist has been over and over and over again going, remember him. Yeah, here's the story of Joseph in the land. Look what God did. Here's the story of you wandering through the wilderness of the land. Look what God did. I promise you, take some time this week to read Psalm 105 on your own. Take a pen, 
underline or circle in your Bible every single time in Psalm 105, the psalmist uses the word he. He made the covenant. He confirmed it. He allowed no one to oppress you. He rebuked the kings on your account. He summoned the famine. He turned their hearts. He sent Moses. He sent darkness. On and on and on again. Remember him. Remember his promise. Remember his protection. Remember his providence. Remember his power. Remember his provision. If we're to be a people who call upon him instinctively, who proclaim his wondrous works and, and his miracles without fear, if we're going to be a people who seek his presence and power continually in our lives, the psalmist says you've got to be a people who remember because you're so easily distracted. And that's where Psalm 106 comes in. See, there's one more thing the psalmist says we have to remember. One more thing. And it's what brings Psalm 105 and Psalm 106 together. And here it is. The psalmist is intent on you and I remembering God's faithfulness despite our perpetual forgetfulness. God is faithful to his promise in spite of your forgetfulness of him. Psalm 105, verse 8, the psalmist says, He remembers His covenant forever. The word that He commanded for a thousand generations. Verse 42 says, He remembered His holy promise and Abraham His servant. Verse 45 of Psalm 106 says, For their sake God remembered His covenant. You see, Psalm 106 is a recounting of the same history in the lives of God's people, but this time it's from a different perspective. Psalm 105 is, is the recounting of their history from Abram to the land that God has promised from the perspective of God's faithfulness. Psalm 106 is from the perspective of Israel's forgetfulness. It's why Psalm 105 starts off with a call to remember because Psalm 106 highlights the reality that forgetfulness of God gives birth to all manner of sinful foolishness. We don't have time to go through all of them in detail. I'll highlight them for you, but really you can encapsulate it in verses six through eight. The psalmist reminds us that forgetfulness of God is what leads to our unbelief. He says, both we and our fathers have sinned. We've committed iniquity. We've done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, all right, so we're back to the story we just went through. When they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love. That is a way to sum up everything he highlighted in Psalm 105. The steadfast love of God that chose Abram and his people for nothing other than his grace and his glory, protected them in their sin along the way, provided for them on the land that he was taking them, showed his power to them to deliver them, to keep them and provide for them. His steadfast love towards them. In the midst of it, they would continue to forget not the details of it, but their heart was no longer satisfied in it. They didn't remember the abundance of God's steadfast love, but they rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. So there they are on the edge of the Red Sea, God having delivered them powerfully from Egypt through all of those plagues. They were eyewitnesses to all of it, including the Passover when God took the firstborn of the land of Egypt in every house that did not have the blood of that sacrificial lamb over the doors he had promised. They had just witnessed all of it, and they're standing on the edge of the sea. God had just brought them there in his power for them, and they stand there. You can go back and read it in Exodus, and they go, did you do all that that we can die here at the sea? 
I, I don't see how we're going to get across. Pharaoh's right behind us. The sea's right in front of us. You just brought us out here to die. They didn't forget literally what he had just done. Their heart no longer believed that he was capable of keeping his promise. And what the psalmist is reminding us of is that the unbelief of our hearts is ultimately rooted in forgetting the reality of who God is. And he calls that unbelief in any given moment rebellion. Rebellion is ultimately rooted in a forgetfulness of God. But verse 8, what a verse. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. What grace, in spite of the foolishness born out of their forgetfulness. And you can end the story right there. I can make the point, close the story, close the sermon, finish the loop and go. But the psalmist isn't done. There's a weight to the chronology of their forgetfulness that he wants God's people to always remember because nothing highlights God's faithfulness any more than to see our continued forgetfulness and his mercy in spite of it. So the psalmist keeps going. And he helps us to see through the story and through the history that our forgetfulness, just like God's people then, is what leads to our discontentment. That's verses 12 and 13. The psalmist says, after God parted the sea, brought them through the sea to the other side, watch the actual army of Egypt get washed up in that sea as it closed up on them, standing on the other side, God having delivered them so graciously and powerfully. Verse 12 says, then they believed his words. Then they sang his praise. But verse 13 says, but then they soon forgot his works. And they didn't wait for his counsel. But they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and they put God to test in the desert. After all that he had done, how he had provided, how he had protected, how he had guided, how he had led, how his power had continually been on display for them, they get to the other side, immediately forget the nature of his work towards them, who he has promised to be for them, and they begin to get selfish. And they begin to demand of God particular needs being met in particular ways. Friends, it's the forgetfulness of God that is at the heart of our discontentment in life. And the psalmist says forgetfulness leads to the foolishness of such discontent, but not just that. Verses 19 through 22 remind us that it's the same forgetfulness that leads to the idolatry of heart that we all experience. He's actually going back to a story in Exodus chapter 32 where he says in verse 19, God's people made a calf in Horeb, a, a gold idol. They worshiped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. So here they are again, forgetting. Not a hundred years later, we're talking a matter of months into a year or two from that moment. They are again forgetting the reality of who God continues to be for them. And I love how the psalmist highlights the fact that the idol of gold they made of this ox is one that eats grass. Because what he's saying is this is the height of their foolishness. This is what forgetfulness of God leads to. They hadn't forgotten the plagues. They hadn't forgotten the provision. They hadn't forgotten the parting of the Red Sea. It just was no longer sufficient for their heart. So they wanted an idol that represented the power that they wanted for them, but it was an idol that had to eat the grass that God created. How stupid. But that's what forgetfulness does. It leads to all manner of foolishness. And as one writer said, Israel's career of ingratitude. I love that phrase. It's a horrible 
reality, but Israel's career of ingratitude reached an all-time low in the golden calf incident. And you're ready for him to stop. But he's not going to stop. He keeps going. Throughout the rest of the psalm, the psalmist reminds us in verses 24 and 25, it's the forgetfulness of God that leads to the grumbling and discontent in our heart. As God's people got on the edge of the land that he had promised, the spies go out to look at it to give a report back to Israel of the land they're going to go into, and they come back and say, well, there's big people over there. They're a lot bigger than us. I don't think we can defeat them. All of a sudden, God's people, forgetting who God is and what God has done for them, not the details, but the reality of who he is is no longer sufficient for their hope, for their joy. They begin to grumble. Are we going to die here again now? Has he brought us all the way here? Now there's big people in the land. Forget the plagues. Forget the parting of the Red Sea. They're bigger than we are. And they begin to grumble. Their hope is not in the God who has rescued them anymore. Their forgetfulness has led them to a place of unbelief. They didn't believe God could lead them all the way through. And so when they heard the report, they got afraid. And they began to believe that God wasn't sufficient for their immediate need. And so they grumbled. The psalmist keeps going, verses 28 through 29. It's the forgetfulness of God that's underneath the unfaithfulness and the corruption of our hearts. God's people, in forgetting God, who he is and what he's done, they yoked themselves to the people of the land, began to worship their gods, afraid that God wasn't going to be able to provide. Give them what they needed, the protection, the provision, the harvest, whatever it was, they began to look around them in the sense of need they had in the moment and in the urgency, they found their hearts connected to something else that could promise to give them what they wanted. Forgetfulness is underneath this unfaithfulness. 34 and 39 take you to the story of God's people in Joshua and Judges. And they didn't destroy the people as God commanded, but they mixed with the nations and they learned to do as they did, serving their idols who became a snare to them. They knew the stories, but their heart no longer found God sufficient for their need, for their hope, for their joy, for their protection, for their provision. They knew the story, but he was no longer sufficient to capture their hearts. They forgot him. And so the psalmist says in verse 43, see, we got through those verses quick. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Take some time to read Psalm 106 this week. It's quite a catalog of foolishness. As God's people will become distracted by the demands and the needs of their day, their heart will look around to see whatever was closest that would offer the quickest solution to their perceived problem. And their forgetfulness of God led them into the foolishness of unbelief, of rebellion, of idolatry, of corruption. And the psalmist is saying, friends, we're no different this is our history. It's our story. You and I fall prey to the same forgetfulness of God's marvelous works towards us that Israel fell to then. But here's the thing. I told you there was one thing we had to remember. In spite of our forgetfulness, God remains faithful. 106 is there in its entirety to drive that thing home. In spite of our forgetfulness, God remains faithful. Verse 44, nevertheless, God looked upon their distress when he heard their cry, and for their sake he remembered his covenant. We might forget him. 
in 10,000 ways every single day, our hearts may not, no longer find him sufficient and desirable and satisfactory for our perceived sense of need, but he does not forget his promise to his people. In the words of verse 1 of Psalm 106, his faithful love endures forever. Or as Sally Lloyd-Jones says in the Jesus Storybook Bible, God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreakable, always and forever love endures forever for his people. And that steadfast love and faithfulness of God's promise and covenant to his people that he never forgot, no matter how often his people forgot him, the promise of God's steadfast love he never forgot and he would put his faithfulness on technicolor display in the life and death and resurrection of his son. Paul reminds the church in the book of Romans, it's while we were still sinners, still living in absolute abject unbelief in God, rebellion towards God, while we were still sinners, God, in commitment and faithfulness to his promise, sent his son to live the life that he created us to live and then die the death that we deserve to die for our unbelief. While forgetful and foolish and ungrateful, he sent his son to die in our place for our sins so that all who could see him, all who would see the glory of God in the face of Christ and call upon him for forgiveness would receive the standing with God that only Jesus deserves. He would put that steadfast love on display for the nations in his son. You see, Psalm 105 and 106, go read them together this week. They are a call for God's people to see and remember God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreakable, always and forever love in Jesus. That the more we would see it, the more we would remember it, the more we actually would enjoy him and his grace more deeply. See, the more we see him, the more we remember him, the deeper we enjoy his grace towards us and his son, the more we put on display a life that instinctively calls upon him out of gratitude and joy because we're remembering who he is. It's so much easier for us to all of a sudden tell of his wondrous works because we're enjoying them on a daily basis. We become a people who can gather together and use the voices he gave us to sing his praises because we see how worthy he is of them. We become a people who desperately realize we need to seek his power and presence every single day for our life because like Abraham, we had nothing that commended ourselves to God. Yet all of it was nothing but a sheer act of his grace. Friends, forgetfulness is dangerous. The psalmist pulls no punches at all. Forgetfulness is dangerous because it shapes the way we think about ourselves and think about other people. But as we remember, we remember his wondrous works, his miraculous deeds, his steadfast love. We remember his faithfulness and his promise and his provision and his power. We remember like Abraham, we did nothing to earn it. And the more we remember and enjoy the generosity of his grace and his steadfast love, the more like his son we become. And the more we remember his steadfast faithfulness towards us. You know what happens? The complaining and the grumbling, for example, the entitlement, that forgetfulness begins to breed in our hearts. It begins to give way to gratitude. The self-focused desire that makes demands and expectations of God, it, it begins to give way to the life of worship the psalmist calls us to at the beginning. 
I love how Spurgeon said it. Spurgeon says, since man ceases not to be sinful, it's a great blessing that God ceases not to be merciful. This is one of the reasons why the Bible, the writer of Hebrews, stresses to God's people that we not forsake gathering together like we are this morning. To not look at the the day ahead of us and the week ahead of us and go, you know what? I can get a jump on all the demands and all the expectations and all the pressures and all the craziness of the week this morning. Look, I'm just gonna stay home. I'm gonna go to the office. I'm gonna go do this this morning because I can get so far ahead. I'll catch up next week to be with God's people. The writer of Hebrews says, don't forsake it for the needs of the moment. Don't, Don't forsake this for the demands of the urgent because it's here as God's people are together, singing together, praying together, reading his word together. We're remembering together the grace of God towards us in his son that we might more deeply enjoy it in our hearts this morning so that our souls are anchored in the presence of the week to come that we might put on display a life of gratitude and joy for all that he has done. This is how it works. It's this remembering that the psalmist is calling to that we do every single week together as we respond to God's word, receiving the Lord's Supper. As we receive the Lord's Supper together, we're called to remember God's steadfast love and faithfulness in sending his son in spite of our forgetfulness and foolishness. We're called to remember God's faithfulness to his promise that we might forever enjoy the depth of his grace. And so this morning as we prepare to respond to God's word, We're gonna do that in a couple of ways. We're gonna give you two minutes to reflect on God's word in silence. It's two minutes for you to possibly consider that catalog of foolishness and forgetfulness in Psalm 106 and ask the Lord to show you where those same aspects of forgetfulness might be present in your own life, that you might acknowledge them to him, confess them to him, turn from him, turn from them to him this morning. And after we take a couple of minutes to reflect, For those who are followers of Christ this morning, we're going to be invited to come forward to take a piece of bread, remembering the body of Jesus broken for our sins. Dip it in a cup, remembering his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And as we do that, that very act is an act of proclamation. It's a declaration of confidence that we have and we are saying and demonstrating that our hope is in this God. It's an opportunity to tangibly remember him his miraculous works, and his wonderful deeds. And so after we reflect, we're gonna be invited to do that. And if you're here this morning and and you would not say that you're a follower of Jesus, we are very thankful that you are here, that you decided to join us this morning. We want nothing more for you this morning than to better understand who God is and what he has done through his son. We wanna help you understand that. Please feel free to ask any one of us when we conclude the service to help you better understand that. But in a moment when everybody gets invited forward, We're just gonna ask you to remain where you are. Honestly, it would be disingenuous of you to stand up and come forward because coming forward to receive communion is an act of proclamation of confidence and faith and hope in God. So you've got that worship guide you got on your way in. There's a couple of prayers that are there. You could just take the time as people are coming forward to consider those. I promise no one is looking around, seeing who's in their seats and who's not. But as we remember God's faithfulness, as we receive communion, we're gonna sing, and then we're gonna be sent out of here as his people. So... Rather than praying our way into it, I want us together to read verse 48 of Psalm 106. I think this verse captures a fitting end to the message of the Psalms. The psalmist says in verse 48, let's read it together. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say amen. Praise the Lord. Take a couple minutes to reflect and then we'll respond.
You've been listening to a message by Robert Green, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.